Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host this week, Kimberly Winston. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. This weekend marks the beginning of Ramadan, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, observed by Muslims worldwide as a time of fasting, prayer, reflection, and community. We thought this would be an excellent opportunity to broadcast a special documentary from the Spiritual Edge podcast titled Becoming Muslim, a series that profiles people from diverse communities in America that have chosen to convert. Let's turn things over to the host and reporter, Hana Baba. In the next hour, you're going to hear the stories of people, all from very different communities. They're part of a series called Becoming Muslim, produced by the Spiritual Edge podcast. Here's our first story. One thing I know as a Muslim in America is that you can't tell the story of Islam in this country without telling the story of Black Muslims. Today, we're going to tell you the complicated story of the nation of Islam through the eyes of one man. I was a basketball player. In the dark suits, Ohio State scores. Abdul Rauf Nasir was at the University of California at Berkeley in the late 60s. We played basketball at Berkeley High, and then I played at Cal too, so I came there as an athlete and a student, student athlete. Uh, but we spent a lot of time, you know, uh, doing other things. Uh, and one of the things we did, we, we, we played cards a lot. We gambled, actually. I was a gambler. And there was a guy who used to come to the gambling table that was in the student union building, and he was a member of the Nation of Islam. By this time, the Nation of Islam was almost 40 years old, and recruitment on campuses was well-established. And he would sell us the paper, Muhammad Speaks newspaper, and he wouldn't leave until we bought some, you know. So we would always buy the paper. It was news of the day. Uh, when I say news of the day, news that was relevant to African-American people at the time. It was defining the African-American uh, civil rights struggle in a different way than what was popular in the media um, because they were talking about separating from America rather than uh, integrating, and they were talking about doing for self. This was a different message than Martin Luther King Jr.'s, whose rhetoric of nonviolence dominated the narrative around black civil rights at the time. We must continue to delve deeper into the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. Many of the younger people were looking for a stronger way or a different way, a more more aggressive way, if you want to put it that way, to, you know, to advance our struggle. They were pushing the older generation to do more, you know, to protect ourselves, not to... Not to follow the nonviolent path. At the same time, students all around Abdul Rauf were demanding change. His black teammates were threatening to strike when one of them was suspended, allegedly for wearing an afro. On the academic side, students were demanding to be taught black studies. He was intrigued by all of it. There were many, many groups that were proposing we have a better solution to advancing our our cause toward dignity and and uh, self-respect and equality and all these things that we were, that became more important to me uh, as I, you know, got older. And uh, the nation of Islam, of course, began to grab more of my attention. We'll rejoin Abdul Rauf in a bit. But first, let's talk about the nation of Islam. 
The Nation of Islam was founded in Detroit in 1930 by a man named Wallace D. Fard, or Master Fard Muhammad. He was a dynamic preacher who claimed he was the manifestation of God on earth. He gave his closest follower, Elijah Poole, the title of Messenger of God, renaming him the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Greetings to you. I'm Elijah Muhammad, the preacher of freedom, justice, and equality. And it was Elijah Muhammad who led and grew the nation over the next decades till his death in 1975. His teachings were based on Afrocentric ideas that preached black nationalism, economic independence, and a complete separation from white people. We have been humble to them for 400 years, and we have not gotten any credit for them. From a religious standpoint, followers of the nation call themselves Muslims, a hearkening back, they say, to the original religion of their enslaved ancestors. And they shunned Christianity as the white slave master's religion. They followed the Quran, though their version of Muslim teachings has been called a heterodoxy from Islamic principles, especially when it comes to the idea that God can come to earth in human form. But Elijah Muhammad did believe that. Here he is in a television interview from the early 1960s, explaining where he says the teachings came from. It is all from him. From him you mean the messenger of Uh, of Allah? No, not the messenger of Allah. I'm the messenger of Allah. I mean from Allah himself who came in the person of Master Farad Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad grew the nation from a group of less than 200 followers in Detroit and Chicago in the 1930s to a nationwide network of temples. By the 60s, the membership had grown to 100,000. The nation advocated self-sufficiency, owning retail and wholesale businesses, schools, housing complexes, banks, and thousands of acres of farmland. It is time for you and me to stand up for ourselves. During this time, Malcolm X had emerged as a charismatic, straight-shooting minister and spokesman for the nation. It is time for you and me to see for ourselves. It is time for you and me to hear for ourselves. And it is time for you and me to fight for ourselves. Malcolm was a gifted communicator, but he also clashed with its leader, Elijah Muhammad. They eventually fell out over stories about Elijah's affairs with young women. Malcolm also began to have experiences that pulled him away from the central teachings of the organization. In the spring of 1964, he left the nation. That same year, he traveled overseas on a trip to Mecca to perform the Hajj. It was life-changing, according to Professor Kayla Wheeler at Xavier University in Cincinnati, an expert on Black Muslims in the U.S. Traveling abroad, being able to go to Egypt, having connections with non-Black Muslims when he goes to the Hajj and he is praying next to blonde-haired, blue-eyed men who he had been taught were the devil and seeing that they were his brothers in faith. That experience changed Malcolm's ideology. While I was at Mecca making the pilgrimage, I spoke about the brotherhood that existed at all levels and among all people who were there on that Hajj who had accepted the religion of Islam. He left the Hajj with a decision to leave the nation and embrace Sunni Islam, the more mainstream Islam that preached racial equality. He denounced black supremacy and the more militant talk of racial segregation he had engaged in. After that, tensions between Malcolm and the nation escalated. 
1965, he was assassinated. The following year, three members of the Nation of Islam were convicted of his killing. The assassination of Malcolm X was an unfortunate tragedy. By the time Abdul Rauf got to Berkeley in 1967, Malcolm had been dead two years, but his presence was still huge. I began to study Malcolm, and um, his approach was, of course, uh, self-defense. Abdul Rauf began to read Malcolm's writings and learn about his role in helping grow the nation alongside leader Elijah Muhammad. He was energetic. He was brilliant. Uh, and he and he was full of energy to, to spread those teachings. Abdul Rauf was just one of many young people who were drawn to the nation during this period. Its message was simple and effective, that Christianity was the religion of the white man forced onto them by slavery, and that Islam was the original faith of their African ancestors they needed to return to. A message that was instrumental to converting generations of African Americans to Islam. At this point in his life, Abdul Rauf was watching as friends were starting to join. One sister who was a good friend of mine, and um, we used to, you know, do a lot of stuff together. She was active in, in student work, uh, in the movements and what have you. And one day I go to her house, and she's got on this white dress. And uh, actually, I was going there to, to, to do some of the illegal stuff we used to do <laughs> together, you know. Uh, and uh, she said she no longer did that. So that really impressed me. And one afternoon in 1969, he decided to go to his first nation meeting across the bay in San Francisco. When I went there, I saw some of my other neighborhood friends. In fact, there was a guy who was a janitor at Berkeley High School, a couple athletes from other schools. They were they had converted. The message was appealing to a wide range of folks. Nation of Islam was a self-help organization. So they were saying that we had the responsibility to do these things for ourselves, that we're that we're asking white people to do for us. This is what I've been reading in the paper. But now I'm hearing it live from from one of their representatives. They're very, very effective speakers. Abdul Rauf was entranced and was primed and ready to join. And so at the end of that meeting, they asked who believes what you heard is the truth. And you stand up and they said, who, uh, and if you want to get more information, follow that guy right there. So you follow the guy in the back, one of their representatives in the back, and then they give out these letters. They say, if you want to join your own and, you know, and be yourself, then you write this letter. And it's a letter that says, I, uh, I want to uh, get a name. I want to give back the slave master's name. He's given the name Abdul Rauf Nasir, and he won't tell me his former name. He feels very strongly about what happened that day, the day he became a member of the Nation of Islam. He started coming to the meetings, learning the teachings, the prayers. His transition was smooth, but some things were hard to deal with. One of the key things, one of the things that was emphasized at the time was not eating pork. My problem was when I would go home and my mother would cook, I'm not eating that, and then you shouldn't eat it. And uh, I want to throw her pork out in her house. And so that's where the difficulty came in. Boy, you lost your mind. You're crazy. Blah, blah, blah. I raised you on that. Look, you was eating it yesterday. Now you're not eating what you know. A big part of being a member was being part of the independent economy. And that newspaper, he was selling that too now, helping the nation achieve incredible sales numbers. They sold a million copies a week. Uh, a week? A, a week. Because all the men were required to sell the paper. We bought farmland. We started importing fish, millions of pounds of fish, and we would take them door to door along with the bean pie. 
the iconic black Muslim bean pies, still sold to this day outside mosques across the country. Years go by, Abdul graduates with a degree in social science, and in the coming years, he would witness the nation going through a huge transformation, one that would force him to make a critical decision about what he believed. It had to do with fresh tensions, this time between Elijah Muhammad and his son, Wallace, known as Warithuddin Muhammad. Warithuddin rejected Elijah's idea of the nature of God. Here's Kayla Wheeler again. Another thing that he rejected that was common among some members of the Nation of Islam is believing that white people do have some inherent evilness to them. So he took a different, more universal approach to what race and racism could be like. So it was not saying that white people were incapable of being racist or that racism did not exist. It was rather saying that it's a social structure. It's not anything that is inherent in an individual. These ideological struggles were at the heart of the nation's transformation. When Elijah Muhammad died in February of 1975, Warithuddin took over, and he started to change the organization immediately. Abdul Rauf was a young grad, and he was following all of this closely. So Wallace Muhammad came in. Yes, that's what I was taught. That's what I was taught. That's what I was given. That's what I believe. Until my mind began to grow out of it. Huh? But the son of Elijah didn't choose to follow the way of Elijah. He chose to follow the way of Muhammad of the Quran. He began to name this part of the journey to Islam as the second resurrection, that the first part of his father's work was the first resurrection, and that this was the second resurrection. And, um, he began to immediately make changes. He said early on what the Nation of Islam was doing that agreed with what he found in the Quran, he would keep. And what he found that was in disagreement with the Holy Quran, he would eliminate. Warthuddin abandoned the Nation of Islam and began to call his organization World Community of Islam. Kayla Wheeler says he very quickly started to move away from some of the black nationalist principles and towards a more global perspective. And that was a big change. People are kind of confused about what's going on. Uh, They give him the benefit of the doubt for a while. But eventually, the group splits. And this is where a familiar name enters the story. Louis Farrakhan, who was a minister in the nation, he decides to break away from Warithuddin and revive the Nation of Islam. And so you do see some families picking which side do they want to go to. Do they want to stay with Imam Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad, or do they want to go with Louis Farrakhan, who claims that he is really keeping Elijah Muhammad's ideas and messages together? Everybody had to make a choice, but for Abdul Rauf, he knew where his heart was. It was clear to him what Warithuddin was saying made sense to him, especially when it came to a basic belief he was having trouble with. The concept of God, it was so unclear what that meant. God came in the person of somebody. The idea that God could come down to earth in the form of a man, that was never what Abdul Rauf believed. He also liked the idea of moving towards a more global and traditional Islam. He started traveling. He went to Africa, Europe. He met Muslims in different countries. And when he got back home, this was 1977, things had changed. 
they had selected a new leader in our local mosque here. He was the first non-African American. Uh, he was the first Pakistani American or Indian American. He's, you know, he was older than Pakistan was. So he began to, of course, institute Juma prayer and Arabic classes and all those kind of things. Most nation members made the choice Abdul Rauf did to stick with Warathuddin and his move to a more traditional Islam. A much smaller group broke off with Farrakhan. Today, black Muslims make up about a fifth of American Muslims, many of them now born into the faith as decades pass. The majority identify as Sunni Muslim or just Muslim. Only 2% have stayed with the nation led by Louis Farrakhan. No matter which black Muslim group you're talking about, scholar Kayla Wheeler says they all share something deep. The number one thing is the love of blackness. You can't go into an Imam Warfi Muhammad masjid and not feel like how black it is in terms of what the khutbah would be. Hearing call and response, somebody is yelling takbir, giving me an amin. There's just this sense of blackness and this distinct black Americanness that is, transcends um, that divide between Imam Warfi Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. I think also what both organizations have been able to keep is connecting to the past, recognizing that they stand on the shoulders of so many Black Muslims and Black revolutionaries. As for Abdul Rauf, he worked as a social worker for many years, earning degrees in Islamic leadership and Islamic studies. Then he found his calling in prison chaplaincy, working 20 years in California prisons as a Muslim chaplain. He's retired now, but he advises people on parole. He holds classes at his local mosque in Oakland. He may not identify with the Nation of Islam today, but he says without it, there may have not been an American Islam at all. The Nation of Islam should get credit for having introduced Islam to America in a major way. We are listening to Becoming Muslim, produced by KALW's The Spiritual Edge. We'll hear more after the break. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host, Kimberly Winston. This week, we are listening to a special documentary from the Spiritual Edge podcast, Becoming Muslim. Let's get back to the story with host and reporter, Hana Baba. Now we're going to turn to a different story from a community you may not usually think about having connections to Islam. This is a recitation of the Quran in Spanish. Y juro por los siglos de los siglos que la humanidad de veras están perdidos, salvo aquellos que aman a su creador y que hacen buenas obras. Growing up as a Sudanese Muslim kid in Texas and the Midwest in the 1980s, I didn't know of any Latinx Muslims. But today, they're definitely here. There are currently hundreds of thousands of Latino Muslims in America. My colleague Natasha Haverty explored some of the reasons why they're converting. Well, one reason has to do with the mass exodus from the Catholic Church. For others, it's tracing heritage back 800 years to Andalusia and the Muslim kingdom that ruled the Iberian Peninsula. A lot of Latinx converts call themselves reverts. Natasha takes it from here. We, we have to remember who we are as Latinos while we walk this path of Islam. Nowhere does it tell us to to discard who we are. A lot of Latinx Muslims talk about a pressure they feel after they convert to erase a huge part of who they are, the Latinx part. Some call it their Latinidad. I did not choose to be Puerto Rican. Now, if I could have chose, I would have chose Puerto Rican because I love it, right? And they talk about a loneliness that comes from that pressure. We're completely used to breaking our fast alone. Like, this is something that's not foreign to a lot of us who've come to the religion because we don't have Muslim families. Aaron Siebert Yera and Raul Gonzalez both converted to Islam 20 years and half their lifetimes ago. Both have been trying to answer the question of how to reconcile their identity as Latinos with their identity as Muslims ever since. One has dedicated his life to helping the Latino Muslim community find itself— the other still isn't even sure being in a community as a Latino Muslim is possible. Let's start with Raul. As a little boy, Raul's earliest experience of religion was feeling terrified. My auntie was very, very uh, Pentecostal. Pentecostal, she didn't tint her hair. She was very, you know, they were very uh, modest in their dress. But it was, you know kind of freaked me out because in the in the Pentecostal religion, and this is not to downplay anyone's religion, this is my experience, uh, the person over here would start speaking in tongues. Latina woman talking crazy. I'm used to that because I'm Puerto Rican. But, you know, in a language I don't know, now I'm getting ready to run. 
I meet Raul on a Saturday afternoon in early March of 2020, just before the pandemic hit, inside a storefront mosque in Chicago's West Englewood neighborhood. Most signs down the avenue here are in Spanish, selling manicures, legal services, tacos. Raul smiles warmly as he passes through the doors. He's stocky, has a gray beard. He wears glasses and a taquilla, a cloth skull cap. I think this is probably it here. That's fine. We find a seat in the little lobby where worshippers leave their shoes before entering a huge room with low ceilings and fluorescent lights. Just as Raul and I sit, the one other person in here, an older guy, goes to the far back corner and starts to pray. This is called the Adhan. This is the call to prayer. Five times a day, the the caller, the muedin, he calls out, it's time to pray. Five times a day, the religion of Islam calls you to success. It's a reminder that Islam leads to success. I ask in a whisper if the man praying is the imam. Raul smiles and shakes his head, no. See, this is the thing about Islam. There's no uh, chief priest. If the imam falls out, we're not supposed to stop the prayer. This is what seems to light Raul up the most as he gets into his relationship with Islam. He feels like it fully invites him in without a single leader telling him what to do. That unlike the Christian church he was raised in, which has a clear hierarchy with one person telling you what's right and wrong, Islam feels more egalitarian. Growing up, Raul faced a lot of violence as a kid and lived all over. New Jersey, Florida, Puerto Rico. Some years in an orphanage, some in foster homes. You know, always moving around. Whoever, whoever's available to hold me down, hold me down. He'd done time in a few juvenile institutions by the time he was a teenager. When he came back to Chicago to live with his mom, he joined a gang. Then when I came home, I was looking for more family. And then I started, you know, getting involved with the street family. And... You know, the gang was my religion. The gang was my religion. And uh, and I was a worshiper. Raul has a word for the years of his life before he came to Islam. It's called Jahaliyyah. Jahaliyyah, the days of ignorance. He's hesitant to go into those days. For him, choosing Islam was a chance to start over, to erase that chapter. What Raul does say is when he was in a gang, he was on the front line. It demands a lot. You know, if a lifestyle, when you choose a lifestyle, you got you to gotta, uh, follow the, the way of that lifestyle. Right? And I was fully committed. That's what I mean when I worship. Raul says his family tried to get him to change course, tried to push him back to the church. They even sent him to seminary. Raul says he knew he should change, but the pull of the streets was so much stronger than the pull of Christian priesthood. So his worshiping of the streets took him all the way to prison, where he spent years of his life. After a fight with a corrections officer, Raul got sent to the hardest prison in the state. Pontiac Correction Center in Pontiac, Illinois. It's the highest max joint in the Illinois Department of Correction, 23 hours a day. No human contact, no nothing. One day, on a walk back from his daily hour of wreck, his arms and legs in chains, Raul passed a prisoner walking the other way down the gallery who called out to him, claiming to be a guy he'd known from the streets. 
But Raul had no idea who this guy was. He looked nothing like the gang member he was claiming to be. What well, was with the long beard, the totally different energy? And he said, bro. And he pulled his beard, man. He says, look. And I looked at him and I said, oh, that is you, bro. What's up? I said, what you old man? He says, I'm Muslim. I said, Muslim? How you a Muslim? We Puerto Ricans. We uh, kings, you know? Seeing this friend in a new, unrecognizable form got under Raul's skin. Back in his cell, he didn't have access to electronics like TV or a Walkman. That's what happens when you get in a fight with a guard in prison. But Raul did get his hands on the Quran, which for the next year, he says he read over and over. And one day, without any fellow worshippers or teachers to talk to, he made one of the biggest decisions of his life. I, I, I took my shahada that right there in an uh, eight gallery of, of Pontiac Correctional Facility. Almost 20 years later, Raul has positioned himself to be sort of the helper figure for any Spanish-speaking person in Chicago finding their way to Islam. As he and I are talking, a couple other people, colleagues of his, arrive at the center and start setting up a folding table with plates of Mexican cookies and Qurans in Spanish, getting ready to greet any Latinos who may show up today for an introductory class to Islam. Their group is called Ojalá. It's an important word in Spanish, and it's descended from a phrase in Arabic that sounds really similar. Inshallah, inshallah, God willing. Ojalá, inshallah, God willing. Raul says the idea of Ojalá Foundation is all about being a place where Latinx people can still feel a sense of belonging as they explore Islam. We're a dawah organization. This word dawah means, uh, in the Arabic word, it literally means a call, but it also means an invitation. So it's a cough, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to think. As part of that, Raul goes out into the streets most Friday nights with other Muslims and hands out food, or these days PPE, to people who are homeless and tells people about Islam. Raul's a gig worker by day, but doing this work with Ojala seems to be the way he's found himself. Raul says there are as many variations of how to be Latino as there are to be Muslim. For him, his purpose and ability to feel like he belongs in this religion he's embraced is putting himself on the front lines of building the community of Latino Muslims here in Chicago. He says a big thing his organization can offer is just a shared language. So the Latino, there's a language barrier. Okay, with uh, because a lot of Latinos don't speak English, and many of the the imams they don't uh, speak Spanish. So what happens when a Latino takes the shahada? Okay, everybody greets him, Alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar. Uh, but then, uh, where's the follow up? Where's the where's the who's going to teach him how to pray? Behind Raul, his handful of peers from Ojala are putting up the organization's banner, and there's a kind of anxiousness in here like you might feel in the minutes before your birthday party's supposed to start, about who, if anyone, is going to show up for the class today. It's still a small community, and there's a sense the group is on borrowed territory in here. I've always wanted a family, you know? I mean, that's even why I got involved in the gang, because I wanted a family. And so now I found Islam. Yes, they look at me funny. If I allowed other Muslims perspective of me to determine whether I was going to stay a Muslim or not, I would not be a Muslim right now. 
In the first Ramadan under COVID, Raul posted a video of himself trying to reach out to Latino Muslims. We have arrived at another ending of this Ramadan and beginning of Eid. Alhamdulillah, may you and all your family enjoy the celebration of Eid. You deserve it. That story was produced by Natasha Haverty. We are listening to Becoming Muslim, produced by KALW's The Spiritual Edge. A link to an expanded version of this story can be found on our website, interfaithradio.org. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host, Kimberly Winston. This week, we are listening to a special documentary from the Spiritual Edge podcast, Becoming Muslim. Let's get back to the story with host and reporter, Hana Baba. On the last story for this hour, we're going to explore a clash that can sometimes happen between faith and culture. For women, there's a lot to think about after they become Muslim, wearing the hijab if they choose to, dealing with expectations of marriage if they're single, do they marry another convert, or someone who grew up in the faith. I can tell you a lot of pressure comes with being a Muslim woman. You have to think about your identity, all the stereotypical images of Muslims, and especially Muslim women. Islam was probably the last religion I would have ever seen myself as converting to. You know, having this image of these women who were who were so oppressed and covered up. Sophie Laverne is a stand-up comedian from Oakland, California. She's 45, wears a hijab, and has these round pink cheeks that turn red whenever she's giggling. And she laughs a lot. She's constantly cracking jokes about her life and all the parts that make up who she is. I'm actually um, half Hispanic, well, half Mexican, half white, and 100% Muslim. And uh, thank you. (laughs) And uh, it does cause a little cultural confusion from time to time. What do I do (laughs) when I get excited? Is it like, golly gee. (laughs) This comedy club called Copper Spoon is where Sophie comes every Tuesday night. Um, It feels like home. It feels like home. And it's so warm, you know, and literally warm. It's always warm. (laughs) There's not a lot of Muslim stand-up comedians. I mean, they're, they're out there. But most of them joke about just regular people stuff, I've noticed. Like, it would be like a guy named Muhammad, but he's talking about that time he was so high on cocaine and he was in San Francisco and blah, 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 you know. But then I get up there and make jokes about being a Muslim comedian. And she's had plenty of material to work with in a post-9-11 America. Like I say, I can't can't ever bomb on stage. (laughs) Because I'm one bad joke from Guantanamo. I'm one bad joke from Guantanamo, I'm telling you right now. At least, at least I know the lyrics to Guantanamera in Spanish, so. Yeah. <laughs> so we're good. When she first became Muslim in 1996, Sophie was living hard times. But she had this curiosity about life, about faith. Converting to Islam felt like a new beginning. But sometimes what comes after conversion is more complicated and unexpected. And in Sophie's case, it would end up testing her new faith. 
Sophie grew up in Southern California. Her family was Catholic, not too religious, but her family life was unstable. Her dad left when she was 18. She and her mom struggled to make ends meet. She had to drop out of college to make money. Things got so bad, she became homeless. She left L.A. and moved north to stay with family in the Bay Area. And it was a cousin who got her interested in Islam. She hung out with her a lot. They were both questioning the Christianity they grew up with. They talked about God, and they both started researching other religions. I got a used Quran, and I got a used biography of the Prophet Muhammad, and like all the stuff I bought was used. And um, so I went and started reading up and realized, oh, wow, this is exactly what, what I think. As Sophie read more and more, she says things started to fall into place. If it makes sense, if it's logical, then I can accept it. You know what I mean? Even if it was completely new and foreign to me. As she contemplated Islam internally, things on the outside weren't going so well. Sophie got pregnant, and things were rocky with her boyfriend. My son's father left me, and he ran back to Mexico, because I didn't know how I was going to tell him that I was planning on becoming Muslim, and then he left, and so he made that part easy, because he took off on me. Now Sophie was on her own, pregnant and going to school. Her life was hard and it was busy. And that internal spiritual search was happening at the same time. Then her cousin, the one who was studying religions with her, she got to the point where she was converting to Islam. So I went to her ceremony. I actually was was pretty pretty ready to be Muslim, but I waited because, like I said, I was reading the biography of the Prophet's life. Uh, I wanted to finish that and because I don't jump into things. I felt like it was a very serious decision. Sophie did more reading and sat with herself a lot. Then she decided. Sophie went to the mosque where her cousin had converted and surrounded by the congregation, she gave her shahada, the testimony of faith that makes you a Muslim. Nothing had prepared her for how intense that moment would be. She still feels it today. So I'm a little emotional. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I felt like I had uh, kind of messed up up to that point. She thought about her unborn son, about his dad, her financial struggles, her whole life. So, you know, they say that when you convert and you take your, your shahada, that all your sins are forgiven. you that in that moment you can feel it you can feel it happen I don't know how else to describe it Uh, like um, it's like being washed or something but not with water but with light I got hugs from all the ladies, and they all welcomed me into Islam, you know. And uh, and it was it was a beautiful moment. Like I said, I had seen my cousin go through it, and, and it was beautiful for her as well. Sophie admired her cousin's experience. She wanted that for herself. But her cousin had also gone through something else right after she converted. She ended up getting married right away. Uh, she married another convert. Sophie wanted to get married, too. And in her new mosque community, that was expected. 
So within a few weeks of becoming Muslim, Sophie says the imam told her since she was single and pregnant, she should get married and that he would help her find a husband. Sophie went along with it. She had a baby son on the way, and marriage didn't sound like a bad idea. The imam was from Morocco, and he'd regularly make trips home. And on one trip... When he had gone to Morocco, apparently, uh, he had brought back um, some photos and, and little bios for guys that he wanted to find wives for. And there were several choices, I guess. The imam recommended a man from his old neighborhood in Morocco. He spoke Spanish. Sophie did, too. So they started corresponding, and very quickly, the man made an offer. Come to Morocco and visit, and if you, you, know, if you like me, then we'll get married, is kind of what his offer was. And that seemed okay. Uh, and I didn't have anyone warning me not to do it. And it just seemed... It seemed like a great opportunity. I could go there and learn about Islam and learn how to speak Arabic and maybe find, a, you know, a nice romantic relationship with someone who, you know, we support each other. And, and you know, uh, that was not really <laughs> the reality. Sophie admits that at the time she was starry-eyed and maybe naive. She continued corresponding with the man in Morocco and she traveled there with her eight weeks old son. I mean, I went over there and, uh, you know, like the day after I got there, he's like, you know, well, I, you know, I love you and I want to marry you. And I was like, OK, <laughs> you know, it just seemed really good. Everything seemed good. But soon things were far from good. They got married, but Morocco was a total culture shock. And Sophie started to struggle. You're moving into an environment where you don't speak the language. Uh, they have completely different culture. Um, we had squat toilets only, so I had to learn how to use a squat toilet. Uh, <laughs> and because I speak Spanish, and my ex-husband, he spoke French, Spanish, and Arabic, so he learned English, I learned Arabic. <laughs> and we used Spanish until we learned enough of each other's languages to communicate a little bit better, and there were a few misunderstandings along the way. Sophie says she tried to get used to the culture, the people, the mannerisms, because she thought she was in Morocco for the long haul, that this was going to be her new home. But within three weeks, he was pushing me to come back here. Her husband wanted them to live in the U.S. Uh, we, we did go try to get him a visa, and we went to the American consulate, and we were denied. And then we found out later that I could come here and apply. So once, once he figured that out, yeah, he sent me back here. Sophie came back to the U.S. and filed for permanent residency for her husband. He joined her nine months later, but she says it soon became an unhappy marriage. She says her husband would say things like, Women aren't supposed to talk. They're supposed to cook and clean and never sit down. You know, um, he was very threatened if I was resting. <laughs> you know, he didn't even like me to sit and like uh, crochet. I like to make things. So crochet blankets or and he said that was being lazy. And there was another big thing. And it had to do with a core part of who she was. She loved comedy. She cracked jokes wherever she went. She's a big laugher, finding humor all around her. And she says her husband just didn't get any of it. He had no sense of humor, you know. And one day I asked him, I said, you know, how long was the surgery? He said, what surgery? I said, you know, the one where they removed your sense of humor, you know, but he didn't laugh. He, he never laughed. <laughs> and comedy, it was a big part of what she wanted to do with her life. She says he discouraged her from pursuing it at all. 
It was torture. It was torture living with someone who didn't get any of my jokes, didn't laugh at any of my jokes. He was always like, the Moroccan ladies don't do that. Okay, well, then marry a Moroccan. I don't know what to tell you. You didn't marry a Moroccan lady. I'm not going to behave like one, whatever that means. He spent 10 years telling me who to be, but he never found out who I was. Why, why are you so dead set on changing me as a human you know (laughs) sophie eventually filed for divorce i didn't interview sophie's ex-husband but i did track down the imam who connected sophie with her husband all those years ago yasser chadley he confirms many of the details of the story including that he introduced her to her ex-husband in the first place he didn't have any bad things like drugs or drunk or, or something and then he wanted to raise this boy as a, as a father to him, that was my essential connection that I wished for her. That was it. He says his intention was to help Sophie. He hasn't had much contact with her since the wedding 25 years ago, but he did hear about her struggles with her husband and her husband's behavior towards her and her divorce. I felt bad about it because that was not my, uh, my wish that this would happen. Of course, when you need people to be together, you wish for them the best thing. So, and now he says he wishes he'd been more present. I never sat with her to ask her, how is this man? How is he uh, treating you? And I, I never sat between them and continued uh, to, to groom them to become good. I just uh, expected they, they will do good to each other. Yeah. And thinking back, Chadley suspects that maybe the man he thought was such a good match for Sophie really just wanted to marry her so he could come to the U.S., over the years, Chadley has seen a lot, and he says he's changed his mind altogether about these kinds of marriages. I think most of it doesn't work. 99%, I would say, doesn't work. Yeah, it's very difficult. It certainly didn't work for Sophie. She ended up alone with three children, cut off from her mosque community, and starting to question why she chose Islam in the first place. I just I had to come full circle again and remember why I converted and remember that it had nothing to do with Moroccan culture. It had nothing to do with him and his misogyny. But I had to stop and separate myself from that cultural bullcrap and what the religion says, because a lot of it is absolutely in contradi- you know, in contradiction to what the religion says. Sophie needed to heal, and she says, to rediscover herself. Yeah, there was there was a time though, right before I left him, that that I think I had almost given up. I was I was kind of a shell of who I of myself, you know. But what I found is after I left, it was like a rubber band that had been stretched. It just went right back. You know what I mean? It just snapped right back. Rediscovery for Sophie meant getting back to who she was, and a big part of that was humor and comedy. One time, this guy, you know, I don't want to call him a racist, came up to me. He's like, "Hey, you." Go back to your country. And I was like, okay, I'm here. I have a weird brain. I have this sort of constant stream of hilarity running through my brain. I'm never bored. I'm rarely lonely. And my brain keeps me entertained. And she knew comedy for her wasn't just funny thoughts in her head. It was more. She was raised on comedy. I studied it by watching a lot of stand-up when I was a kid, and I loved Robin Williams and George Carlin and Stephen Wright. And you watched George Carlin on you, right? Oh, yeah. You know, he was amazing. And she knew she had a talent. So, a couple of years after her divorce, she felt she was ready to go on stage. 
So I never get greeted at Walmart. Does this happen to anyone else? Every time I go in, there's like those twin greeters, and they're looking at each other like, I'm not going to greet her. You greet her. You going to greet her? But uh, CVS, on the other hand, they have like excellent customer service. And by customer service, I mean surveillance. <laughs> you know, I just started coming here, and I hung out until they put me up, basically. And then I guess I did well enough that now they put me up pretty much if I come sometimes like, yeah. I mean, I've heard the jokes like a million times, <laughs> but they're so funny, you know. <laughs> On this day, just before the first COVID lockdown, she brings her two now teenage daughters along. She says they're more her buddies. She keeps them close and they live at home with her. And she listens to them a lot. Yeah, I'd say sometimes it's just like, don't put that in there, but... They're like, maybe don't use that one. Don't use that one tonight. I'm happily divorced. Yeah. My, my ex was, um, he was very cheap. And uh, one time I was in the store. This is a true story. This actually happened. I was in the store. I was getting the pets. And he's like, do you really need those? And I'm looking at the package, and I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at the package, and I'm like, ah, it says right here, always. <laughs> uh, it might be a little cathartic, I suppose. You know, I try not to think about him too much, honestly, as seldom as possible if I can avoid it. Uh, they say that, you know, having a sense of humor is like a coping mechanism, but it doesn't feel like coping. It almost just feels like... Everyone has to look at life through some kind of lens, right? But if you can look at a lens that makes you laugh, that makes you a lot happier as a person, you know? Becoming Muslim is a project of the Spiritual Edge podcast at KALW Public Radio. Support for the series comes from the Templeton Religion Trust. Jeb Sharp is the editor. Tariq Foda is the sound engineer. Lindsay Myers-Humley is the digital content manager. Tom Levy is the photographer. Our executive editor is Judy Silber. Thanks also to Katie McCutcheon and Jod Khalil for help with research for the series. We're grateful to the experts who helped us along the way, including Edward Curtis, Juliette Galonier, Zarina Grewal, Sajida Jalalzai, Hind Mekki, Bashir Mohammed, Harold Morales, Spirit, and Kayla Wheeler. To hear more stories from this series, check out our complete archive at thespiritualedge.org. We're also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'm Hanat Baba. That's all for this week. If you missed any part of the show, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org, where you can find a link to an extended version with even more stories. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your guest host, Kimberly Winston. We'll see you next week. <laughs>